Hey, good morning. Welcome to Salem Chapel. Encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. We're going to jump into verse 19 here in just a few minutes. If you're new, let me just say welcome. It's no small thing that you would come into this place, and we are super grateful for you to be here. My name is Aaron, and I serve as the executive pastor. And if you were here last week, um, and if not, let me catch you up. Uh, Johnny, our lead pastor, kicked off a new series uh, entitled That You May Believe. And what we're going to do is we're going to spend the next five and a half months walking all the way through the book of John. And perhaps you know this, perhaps you don't, but all of the Gospels really have one key theme, one uh, idea that comes out of them. And in the Gospel of John, it's this word, belief. So the question I want to pose for us this morning, even in especially Christian circles, is what do you believe about Jesus? And the way we're going to flesh that out this morning is we're actually going to look at this character by the name of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was last week just kind of briefly introduced in um, verse number six, but really it's not until you get to verse number 19 through 34 that really we start to see his life, his ministry, his purpose, what he was about. The account of John the Baptist occurs in all of the other gospels as well. But if you have no idea who John the Baptist is, let me just give you a real quick bit of context. And so uh, he really kind of had a spectacular birth. He was born to uh, uh, his father by the name of Zachariah and his mother Elizabeth. He's the cousin of Jesus. It was a spectacular birth because they think he was about 90 years old, uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth. So way too old to be having kids. I can't even imagine like what that would be like. Can you? But there was a purpose, that was a delayed laugh if I've ever seen it. There was a purpose. There was something significant that God had placed on John the Baptist. Because of that, he took what was called a Nazarite vow. And that Nazarite vow just simply meant this. That he was going to set himself apart for a time. Some took a Nazarite vow for life, but others just took it for a period of time. That he was going to dedicate himself in service to God. So that meant a couple of things. That during this time as this Nazarite vow was, was underway, man, you couldn't cut your hair. And you couldn't be around anybody that was deceased, um, even your own family. Because the idea was that that, that really would make you uh, unholy, unworthy would be unclean in kind of the Levitical law system. You could have no wine. But then John is really an interesting character because he kind of lives out in the desert and he dresses in camel hair clothing and he eats locusts and honey. And I did some research. I can find no reason why that had anything to do with a, a Nazarite vow. I don't know if the picture's up behind me. Like that's somebody's rendition of what John the Baptist, because obviously we don't have pictures in case you didn't know that. Uh, John the Baptist was just, man, he was a weird dude. So if you're ever going to encounter this guy, you're thinking, man, what in the world is this guy about? But he had a purpose. He had a purpose. His purpose was this. He came in order to prepare people for Jesus' arrival and the kingdom of God. So he comes and he's to announce, man, the Messiah is coming. It is time for us to understand. We've been living in this religious system, but we as God's people need to repent. We need to believe in Jesus. I think if we could summarize really John's ministry, and especially if we look at this text in one phrase, it would be this. Man, Jesus is greater. The Jesus is greater. Now listen, 
I am not naive enough to believe that everyone in this room actually thinks that Jesus is greater. That's why John actually writes this entire book, that you may believe. And listen to me, there is nothing that is greater than the moment that we go from an intellectual knowledge about who Jesus is to that moment where by faith we actually believe the gospel, the good news of what he has done on our behalf. That's a glorious moment. And so if you're here and that's not you and you actually don't believe Jesus is greater, you're in good company. Because John actually writes in the closing chapter, the second to closing chapter of the book of John, the purpose is to believe. He said, but these are written. Like everything that I've written in the book of John, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's significant. Now, I also know that there's a couple of other categories of people in this room this morning. People who believe that Jesus is greater, but life right now where you're at has left you doubting. It's left you in a place of confusion. And if you're honest with me this morning, you're saying, I'm not experiencing this Jesus is greater that you talk about. Then there's probably another category that you know it in your head. And you've walked perhaps with Jesus for a long, long time. But it has been forever since it actually impacted your heart in such a way that it's lived out differently in your life. So when John, John who writes this gospel about John the Baptist, a lot of John's in this first opening thing, so a lot of John's. When John answers the question, John the Baptist, about how is it that Jesus is greater, I see four truths. So I'm going to read the fullness of this text a little bit. We're going to We're going to walk through this, but let me just give you these really as a precursor to understanding why there's an argument in this text that Jesus is greater. So in verse 27, we really see Jesus' worthiness. John the Baptist says, and he looks at Jesus, he says, now, listen, I'm not even worthy enough to untie his sandal. The idea was that there was nothing more lowly that a person could do. It It was a slave function to wash the feet. And, and when John the Baptist looks at Jesus, he said, no, no, don't you understand? I'm not even worthy because John is saying, Jesus, you're that holy. But of course, he goes on, verse 29, he says, Jesus is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a significant statement we're gonna unpack here in just a little bit. He talks once again about Jesus who's preexistent when he says in verse 30, he who was before me. And Johnny really talked a lot about that last week. But this idea that, that Jesus in the incarnation was not the first time he existed. He always was, Colossians 1. That he always has existed and he created all things. And then verse 34. Man, it ends this way. Jesus is the son of God. You see, when I ask the question, what do you believe about Jesus, a lot of us will make an intellectual assent to these truths. But it's not at all the way that we live our lives. See, I think that the problem for a lot of Christians is not that we believe that we are greater. Like, we don't believe sometimes that we're greater intellectually. We just often live like we are. Let me say that one more time. It's not that we actually believe so often that we are greater than Jesus. We just live like we are. You know what that means? 
It means that every situation, every circumstance that you face in life, every struggle that you've encountered, every bit of success that you've had, because some of you in this room have said, man, man, it's been gold all of my life. If that's you, let's talk. But great success. Some of you experienced unbelievable failure. All of these things are actually an opportunity for us to either do one of two things, make much of me or make much of Jesus. I want you to know just one thing. If you walk out of this room today and you look at these verses, 19 through, through 34, and you say, man, I, don't, I can only remember one thing. I want you to know this. I want you to know that because Jesus is greater, I can actually magnify him instead of myself. And some of the ways that we're going to magnify Jesus is just when we have a growing sense that he is both our Savior and our Lord. Man, a lot of times we love to believe that he has saved us, but we don't like the idea that Jesus is actually Lord, that he possesses an authority that is greater than our authority, that he can give direction to our life Not because he just wants you to be able to to live well, but actually he has the authority as the son of God to do that. So a little bit later in John chapter 3, what you're going to see is John the Baptist once again says this in, in verse 30. He says, he must increase. He's talking about Jesus. He must increase. But I must decrease. It's this idea that there must be this magnification of who Jesus is in our own lives. Because we need to make less of ourselves and more of Jesus. How do we do that? Man, one of the ways is magnifying Jesus is just growing in an awareness. I just want you to walk out of here today with an awareness of all of the different ways that we tend to live as if we are both the Savior and Lord. And man, you're only going to see that. You're only going to see how you live as your own Savior and your own Lord the more that you abide with Jesus. So if you come into this room this morning and you're saying, man, I'm actually struggling to live that out, here's the question I'd ask for you. How much are you abiding with Jesus? How much time are you actually spending with him? Because if you're swirling over here just in your own thoughts, your own desires, your own direction of life, and you're not spending any time with your Savior, it's going to be impossible for you to desire to magnify him over yourself. And then the more that we abide with Jesus, the less that we are functioning as our own Savior and Lord. There is a reciprocal nature to abiding. It's a glorious thing. So what we're going to look at this morning is I just want to give you two results out of this text. That when I magnify Jesus in my life, there are some things that I think that we can take and we can apply to our life. Here's this first thing that I want to give you. When I magnify Jesus in my life, I will know who I am. I'll know who I am. Let's go to the text. John chapter 1. We'll start reading in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So what happened was John has been out in the wilderness for 
oh, about a year, and he's preaching and he's baptizing both Jews and Gentiles. And if you were baptizing Jews, that didn't make any sense because at that time they were already uh, part of the covenant community of God and so why this was happening. And so as often happened during this time, the religious uh, delegation kind of gets um, you know, up in arms and they, and they send these guys out to find out who John the Baptist is because they want to know who he is. And so they ask him that question and I think it's an important question for us to, to drill down on here in just a minute. John says he confessed and did not deny, but he confessed. So I am not the Christ. That's just the the Greek word for Messiah, meaning the one that they were anticipating that was going to come and be the Savior. I'm I'm not him. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? So the question should be, like, why would they ask him if he was Elijah? Well, as the the Old Testament closes in the book of Malachi, the, the second to the last verse, it says this. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So this Jewish delegation would have thought, man, is this Elijah who was coming, who we anticipate, who's going to come before the Messiah comes? But look at what John the Baptist says. He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet, he answered. That's a reference to Uh, The book of Deuteronomy, some at this time would have thought that was another reference to the Messiah, others thought it was another prophet, Uh, but nonetheless, he looks at that and he says, once again, just kind of emphatic, like, no, no, that's not me. So I said to him, again, and I love this, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Isn't that interesting that, that I want you to see even the human kind of uh, peer pressure that was going on in this text. Like, listen, we have to go back and we have to report a few things that have been said uh, about who you are. We can't go back without knowing. So, John, what do you actually have to say about yourself? So he answers him. He says this, and I'm the voice. I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah Said That was a reference to the prophecy from Isaiah 43. Double-click on this question. Who are you? Who am I? Because the, the question that was posed to John is actually a question that we ask ourselves a whole lot. If you've been alive for any period of time, I can assure you that you have wrestled with this question a time or two. Man, so maybe you're just in high school. You're trying to figure out who it is that you are. Maybe you're in college. Maybe you're in young adulthood. Maybe you're in middle-aged as I am, and you're like, who am I? And it's a question that we ask ourselves, but it's also a question that at least perceptually we believe that other people are always asking us. Who are you? What do you say about yourself? So much so that even today I think we could say that our culture is obsessed with this question of who am I? How obsessed? I'm glad you asked because I went to Google to find out. And so I typed in these words. How, how do I find, I had to think about how I said that, how do I find who I am? And I was stunned. You know how many results there are? 92.3 million results. To the question, who am I? Which got me thinking a little bit like, okay, well, we try to answer this question, but what I really want to know is there's a lot of ways that we try to answer this. And so personality tests are one, right? Enneagram, Myers-Briggs, ENFJ, 
Enneagram 6. In case you want to know who I am, that's who I am. If you don't know what that is, Google it later, but get off your phone. 2,500 personality tests currently exist. 2,500. Can you imagine trying to take 2,500 personality tests? Which then, after I got to this point, led me down the rabbit trail of Google because I was probably a little bit like bored at the time. So I'm like, go to Amazon, Aaron. And I typed in self-discovery books. 8,000 titles on self-discovery. 8,000, which I thought was significant. Like, there's really 8,000 books on self-discovery? I thought, oh, let's go to the ultimate. Self-help. How many titles? 80,000 plus titles just for self-help. Including, it came up almost first in my little search, this lovely little gem about how you can find yourself by exploring the way of the horse. And I'm not, I'm not really sure like what you get out of that, but I, apparently there's 42 cards that are going to help you discover yourself by understanding horses better. And here's the thing, it was like number two in the Amazon list. <laughs> now listen, don't, don't think I'm an anti-horse. I grew up as a horse kid. I grew up as a draft horse kid. So I love horses. But like my horses as a kid, they, they didn't do a whole lot to help describe to me who I actually was. I want you to think about the places that we often do go to just to figure out who it is that we are. There's some common ones, some things that as I mentioned, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. That's, I've, heard, I've heard pastors mention that. Like what do we do? So a lot of times we look at our vocation, like this is, this is what I do, and our vocation becomes a thing that just over time kind of defines us, but our education, sometimes our lack of education or sometimes all of the degrees that we have on our wall, man, that just, that's, that's who I am. Relationships do this. Either I'm single, I'm married, I'm in a great relationship, I'm in a lousy relationship, all of those things, whether it's money or lack of money. Man, I have all sorts of money, or I have no money. Where we live, how we look. Listen, I'm from Naples, Florida. There's, there's millionaire, billionaire's road down there on the beach where one guy, one family, literally tries to outdo the next by how big a house they can build. Because where we live a lot of times says a lot into our own soul about what we think about who we are as people. But there's also some things that I think are a whole lot less obvious. So our life stories. A lot of times we look to define ourselves by our past experiences. Man, all of these things have happened to me in my life. And they've just got to the place where it defines who I am. Or our family history. Like Ancestry.com, great thing, right? But why do we go to Ancestry.com? Because we're trying to answer the question, who am I? Our successes, our failures, even a lot of times our hurt and our pain tends to be the thing that defines who we are. We live as people who are defined by how much hurt we've experienced and how much pain we are currently enduring. How much abuse and trauma have you suffered? And listen to me this morning, church. There is nothing that is more wicked or grieves my heart than the abuse and the trauma that occurs in families and in households and in workplaces. 
So often we take that abuse on as though somehow we are at fault and it begins to shape who we are. And then even in our current culture, we have a lot of questions that swirl around this idea of gender. And I want you to know that I have great sympathy for those who are struggling with that. And you know why? Because it's just a different, really, declaration of the same question. Who am I? It's this deep, longing search to answer this question. Who am I? But then there's some things that are hard to see because everything that we've talked about so far, far, it begins to drop itself down into our soul in ways that, that really do tend to define us. Sometimes just in moments of shame. Because shame says this, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough at my job. I'm not good enough in my marriage. I'm not good enough as a parent. I'm not good enough in this situation. And shame, this this undergirding thing that's in our soul, begins to define who we are. Other times it's fear. Fear of what others think, or at least how I perceive what they think. Be honest, how many times do we walk around and somebody just makes a little comment and we're thinking, oh, I know what you think about me. You do that, right? I do that. Anger. You know, one of the ways that anger really, when when it comes out, one one of the manifestations of anger is because we're asking this question, or at least we're making this statement. I'm just misunderstood. Like, you don't, you don't understand what I do or what I was trying to say or who I'm trying to be. And so we get angry because we say, I've just misunderstood. Sorrow. What I've lost. Sometimes we can be defined by the insurmountable feeling of loss that has permeated the entirety of our lives. It's deep, deep grief. Sometimes there's guilt, the pain for our wrongs. I want to say something that's kind of hard for us, and I think it's hard for us to fully wrap our head around. But here it is. I want to deliver this to you, but I'm delivering it to my own heart even as I preach this message this morning. Sin by us and done to us turns us toward ourself. It blinds us to realities that we can't see. You know what happens? Then we begin to trust what we think and what we feel and what we experience as we relate to others. And all of these things in, in this question of who I am, those things are, begin to be the things that we actually trust that define us when we're trying to answer this question. But there is in the midst of this a grace of God in his word and through other people that allows us to see the areas and where we are blind. Pastor and counselor Paul Tripp puts it this way. He says, since sin blinds. We can't know ourselves well without the help of others. Be thankful for the ministry of the body of Christ. I gotta be honest with you. There's a couple of, uh, there's just a couple of people in my life that have made that reality so helpful. My wife, Johnny and Lori, there's a few others that, man, I trust to go to in the moments when I'm blind do you have that person? Because God in his grace gives you his word for you to see it and he gives you the body of Christ. But it also then I think asks a question. Why do we even want to ask the question, who am I? Have you ever thought about that? Like why do we even ask this question, who am I? 
Because really what's going on is we have an innate feeling that something is missing. And you know where that began? It began in the Garden of Eden. There was a temptation in that moment. The temptation from the enemy was this. You can actually know like God does. It was a who am I moment. In the moment that Adam and Eve succumbed to that temptation, it was a question among other things that happened about who they were. And somehow in that moment, they believed that God had held back from them. That their, their, their fullness, their identity had somehow been restricted by God. And in that moment that sin separated us, we failed just to be who we were always meant to be, who God designed us to be in creation, what it looked like before the fall. So understand this, church. Sin broke our relationship with a holy God that turned us inward in a very self-centered, self, selfish view that distorts how we view ourselves why we can't see this question, but also how it is that we view God. And we have spent since the Garden of, excuse me, of Eden trying to rediscover an identity. So who are we? Who are we really? And I want you to know that Jesus, the gospel, the good news of his life, death, and resurrection re defines who you are. In verse 27, remember what I said? John says he is not worthy to untie the sandal of Jesus. What's he saying? Because he doesn't have a self-esteem problem. Look at the way he dresses. Right? What's he saying? He recognizes in that moment who Jesus actually is. Let me put it this way. John the Baptist knew who he was because he first knew who Jesus was. John the Baptist knew who he was because he first knew who Jesus was. Say, good, Aaron. Glad for that. Why does it matter? Because here I am in the middle of my life trying to figure this out. I want to answer the question, what are we really looking for when we ask the question, who am I? Because there's... There's something that's even under the hood there. And I just want you to know this, that when I know who I am, I actually will understand my purpose. I'll understand my purpose. Let me, let me show you that. So go back to the text, verse 23. I want to read a little bit more. He said, I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So again, the prophecy that John was born to fulfill. Now, they'd been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him then, why are you baptizing if you were neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not even know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. See, who am I really asked the question, what's my purpose? 
And in all of the ways that we attempt to discover who we are is an attempt to say this, like, do I even matter? Do I have a reason to be here? Do I have a reason to be alive? What is the purpose of life? Why am I living this life that sometimes feels so futile? Like, I I just feel like I'm on a never-ending hamster wheel that never seems to go anywhere. And so we're searching for purpose, and we try to find our purpose that is anchored in our identity. And so you know what we do? We make much of ourselves because we don't actually believe that Jesus gives us deep enough meaning to be fulfilled because we want to have purpose. I want to illustrate this kind of in a, in a funny way. A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I, so we live up in like Rule Hall, Tobaccoville, so a lot of times on Friday nights because Jen's tired and uh, we just go up to King to this little diner thing that we like. We go up there like at 4.30 in the afternoon. I'm kidding. We don't really go up at 4.30, but we went. <laughs> the staff just thinks that I'm really an old guy or that I at least play this up, so I had to say that. Went up to King to eat dinner. Uh, we're coming back. It's dark, 52 right there. They're putting the, the northern bypass in. Uh, so there's construction. There's one lane. There's barricades on both sides of the road. We're getting off at our exit. Um, Jen's oblivious to this whole thing, by the way. I see all of a sudden a crash occur. So, man, this car goes over. It hits the barricade. It goes up in the air. comes back down. goes across the, the, the road. hits the other uh, concrete barrier, um, and smoke is flying, all this kind of stuff, and so we're kind of on the exit ramp, and so we pull off, and I have to walk across just a grassy area, and I'm standing on, I'm standing on one side of this concrete barrier, and then there's one lane open, then there's the other lane, which was closed, which was the whole reason the accident happened, because this guy ran into the, like he started to run into the back of the truck that was putting the cones out for the night. And then the car was stuck up against the concrete barrier. And so this other car stopped right in front of them. Now, I thought that other car had actually been in the accident, but they hadn't. They were just stopping to see if they were okay. So there's glass and everything over the road. Because the one lane is closed, no one can see that this accident has occurred. It's completely hidden. And there's, uh, as these trucks go by, like I'm standing on the side of this barricade thinking, I'm not dumb enough to walk across this thing. Like I can see they're moving. It looks like they're okay. Glass is flying over my head, and I, I say to the lady, I say, so are, are they okay? Is everything, do you need help? We've called 911. And this was her response. Hey, hey, I just wanted you to know, I just got my CPR card, so I, I wanted to stop. <laughs> to, which, to which I thought, fabulous, like, I'm really grateful you got CPR. I'm not sure how it's relevant in this particular moment as we're shouting at one another across the interstate. I thought about that as I drove home. I thought, I've heard a lot of crazy things. Uh, like I've been a lot, but why exactly would she tell me? Like what relevance did that have in the moment? Because in that moment, it was just an expression of our heart saying, man, here's something I earned And so I matter in this moment. And it's a funny way to illustrate all of the ways, the hundreds of different ways that we actually play this out in our lives. When we look at all these things and say, this is who I am, so I matter. And John was given ample opportunity to make much of himself, and he'd have none of it. He says, I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. You know what his purpose was? And it's the same purpose we possess to make much of Jesus in the places and with the people that God has placed us. So you're not in the place that you're in by accident. 
Your work is not meaningless. The people that God has put you around is not incidental to your greater purpose in Christ Jesus. You actually have a purpose that transcends the purpose that we often look for. But what I really want us to believe is that what Jesus accomplished in his life and his death and his resurrection reclaimed what was lost in the garden that sends us on this quest to try to figure out who we are. And your purpose, your identity has been fully reclaimed by the cross of Christ. But do you actually believe that? And if you struggle to believe that, then this second thing I hope kind of drills down for us how this can play itself out as a reality in our life. Because you see, when I magnify Jesus, I will trust also what he accomplished. Look at verse 29. The next day, Jesus, uh, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a significant statement, right? This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. And I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I bore witness that this is the Son of God. There's a significance in that statement. There's a significance when John says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because the Lamb would have meant everything to those who heard this at first. But a lot of times what happens is we can miss this. They knew the significance. So the sacrificial lamb, which had been required to atone, to make right for the sin against a holy God, was what something that they were familiar with. And so here is John, and he looks at Jesus, because Jesus is in the crowd. And he says, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the Old Testament, it was just a shadow, but now there's a substance. When John looks at him, he says, the Lamb is a man. No longer will these sacrifices be required because he is going to pay the ultimate sacrifice. You know why this matters for us? Because we don't always have a robust understanding of sin. We see sin as behavior. So yeah, it manifests itself in behavior, but when we just reduce sin to our behaviors, then what we do is we think that we just need to behave better. Just do better. How's that working for you? Is that working well on any given day? Or are you like, man, I, I, like I try, but I'm, I'm not behaving better. See, the Bible is very, very clear. Sin is first in our hearts. It's in our souls. We were corrupted because of the fall. And that means that we are sinners who sin, not, not at all that we sin and therefore are sinners. That's a big distinction. Jesus says it this way, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Men are, what he's really saying is the way that our actions are manifested comes first out of the sinfulness of the heart. And that means that you do not get better by doing better. You know how we play this out? We bring our good enoughs to Jesus as though that's an acceptable sacrifice. Can I tell you something? 
Stop it. Like stop, just stop it. Stop bringing your good enough to Jesus as though that is a good enough sacrifice. And you know why? Because it undermines the gospel and our need for a savior. No one is righteous, no not one. All of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. There is nothing that you can bring to the feet of Jesus that he has not already fully provided for you in the cross when his blood was shed, which is why we sing a song like we sang this morning. but our hearts tend to undermine this truth that he takes away the sin of the world. Because sin blinds us. We don't even see a lot of times how our search for who we are is a result of the sin that leads to all the brokenness that we are experiencing. We don't anchor it in the fall. We don't see all of the struggles. Listen, if, if you don't understand that it's not what God created and that when the fall occurred, that's the reason that we're in the mess that we're in, then you have uh, either a, a bad theology or you need to grow in that theology because we have to anchor it in the fall. And when you anchor it in the fall, the sacrifice of the Savior makes all the difference in the world. So when we're trying to find ourselves, really, we just don't see it as a consequence of the fall. You were created by Jesus for Jesus. You weren't created by your job for your job. You weren't created somehow for your spouse by your spouse. You weren't created for your house by your house. Like you were created for Jesus. So when we begin to look to any of those other things to give us meaning and purpose, we always end up over here just never satisfied. It's never enough, and it just sets us up as a functional Savior. What's a functional Savior? I want you just to think about for just a moment, what did your heart really long for when you're experiencing moments of shame, when you tell yourself, I'm not good enough? Or you're struggling with fear and you're like, I don't like, I don't, I don't like how I'm viewed. What do you do? Man, a lot of times we work harder. We do more in order to please people so that we can be viewed better. So I'm gonna be a better parent, I'm gonna be a better spouse, I'm gonna be a better employee. Because this shame is always telling me, it's always speaking to my mind, it's always preaching to my head, like you're not good enough. And it just, it sets us up as a functional savior. Sometimes we're in a place where there has been some awful things that have happened to you. And you know what? I'm grieved for that. But we tend to take on even guilt and shame with the things that we've experienced and believe that they're our fault. That we sometimes or somehow have to make the payment for the sin that has been done to us. And in every one of those areas, what we're saying effectively is I'm my own savior. I must become the one who justifies, who makes right sin, both the sin that is done by us, but also the sin that is done to us. And I know that's a hard concept for us to wrap our head around this morning. I get it. Being a functional savior is just living as if we or other people have to carry the weight and make right the brokenness that sin has caused in us and in this world. Can I tell you something? Not you or anyone else was designed to carry that weight. Only Jesus is. Only Jesus is. January, I will have been married to my bride 26 years. I thought um, when... 
I got married, she, uh, she really obtained something spectacular. I know. It's my view of myself. Some of you are looking at that picture going, I know what you're thinking. Just move on. It was me. I thought I was special. I'm not sure Jen's going to be excited that I put that up there, but nonetheless, let me be transparent with you. Man, I was married when I was 21 years old. It wasn't always an easy road, and, and there was just some times in life where we experienced some real difficult challenges, and we needed somebody to help us. And so we got that help, and I'll never forget, there was a day that Jen walked back in the house. Um, man, and this made me so angry. She looked in, and she, she said, hey, I just want to let you know something. In her sweet voice that she does, uh, I, I'm not responsible for your happiness. Oh, I was ticked off, man. <laughs> like, what do you mean? Didn't God put you here for my happiness? I thought so, and I thought, Man, you're married to a spectacular guy, so why would this not be true? <laughs> In effect, and what I learned through a whole process, that, that actual statement changed my life. Because God used that to show me how, first of all, I was my own functional savior who could no longer live up to the weight that I was trying to bear. And so I placed it on Jen, and she couldn't bear it either. And we were in a mess, and God changed me. So it's important because when we look back at this text and we say, man, Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one that justifies us. He's the one that bears the weight of the sin. He's the one that's making all things new. He's the one that's restoring all of the things. And when we trust what he has accomplished, we are saying this, what I can't do, Jesus has done. Where I look to myself as my Savior, he has already saved. And when we trust that instead of ourselves, that's when you start to magnify Jesus instead of me. I'm going to close with this. When I know what he's accomplished, I will need to abide with him. When I understand the truths that I just preached about, I will need to abide with him. For time, I'm not going to read the last few verses again, but I just want you to know this. I chose the word need intentionally because we never grow past needing the gospel every day. We are prone to forget what Jesus has actually accomplished and that sin still resides in us. And it's only in abiding that we are reminded of this truth. So here's something significant. If you write in your Bible, in verses 32 and 33, you see that word remain? It's the same word that's translated abide in John 15. Same word. So Jesus' baptism, when we see the Spirit descend and remain on Jesus, and Jesus is the one that comes along and baptizes us with the Holy Spirit, that's at conversion, that's a once and for all, you are filled with the Holy Spirit, that enables us to abide so when Jesus says in John 15, as a father has loved me, so I have loved you, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Now these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So I want you to understand what's going on because uh, what happened and what John is saying here is as the Father has loved God, the Son, so the Son loves us. And then as Jesus abides in the Father's love, we also then abide in his love as we keep his commandments. And so there's this reciprocal nature of what the relationship it looks like to be a Christian. So where is it that we might be prone to not keeping his commandments? And I want to give you just, just one way. There's, there's a bunch. But it's this. It's what I've spoken about. It's when we act as functional saviors. 
But what's the result when we abide? The end of John 15, those verses I just read, this says this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Do you want that? Like I'm talking about a deep, rich fullness of joy. Not just mere happiness, because happiness is going to come and go. Some of you are in this room, and you're not happy, but I'm talking about a joy that is settled so deep in your soul because of what Christ has done for you on the cross that nothing, no matter what you're experiencing in life, is ever going to be able to strip you from the joy that is yours in Christ Jesus. And that only comes when we abide with him. It's what our hearts long for when we try to answer the question, who am I? Because it means you will always fail to find who you are outside of abiding with Jesus. Always. I can make that state always. So what I want you to do. Well, in one sense, I don't want you to do anything. Jesus has already done it all. Like, that's what I want you to believe. There's nothing else you need to do. But in another sense, I want you to abide. You see, in his word, we constantly see this theme, Jesus is greater. And if you believe that, then when we magnify Jesus as we, belong, as we abide with him, there is no amount of soul searching that will ever for you provide what simply abiding with Jesus will provide. So church, if you believe Jesus is greater, or you're struggling to experience that, abiding is key. And it will give you a joy that is everlasting. Father, thank you for your word. As we worship you in this moment, God, I pray that you would just encourage our souls, bring us to a place where even for those who are struggling this morning, recognize that Jesus, we need you. But you've already accomplished everything that we think we lack. Father, may we worship you this morning in a spirit of love and a spirit of truth. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.